Today we're talking to Roly Pemberton. He is a writer, rapper, producer, poet, and activist who performs under the name Cadence Weapon. He won the 2021 Polaris Music Prize for his album Parallel World. His writing has been published in Pitchfork, The Guardian, Wired, and Hazlitt. Currently based in Toronto, Pemberton was a former poet laureate in his hometown of Edmonton. Tracing his roots from recording beats in his mom's attic in Edmonton to performing with some of the most recognizable names in rap and electronic music, De La Soul, Public Enemy, Most Def, Questlove, Diplo, and more, Polaris Prize winner Roly Pemberton, aka Cadence Weapon, captures the joy in finding yourself and how a sense of place and purpose entwines inextricably with the music scene in his debut memoir, Bedroom Rapper. From competitive basement family karaoke to touring Europe, from fights with an exploitive label to finding his creative voice, from protesting against gentrification to using his music to center political change, really charts his own development alongside a shifting musical landscape. As he finds his feet, the bottom falls out of the industry, and he captures the way so many artists were able to make a nimble name for themselves while labels floundered. Bedroom Rapper offers us a wide-ranging and crucial history of hip-hop with an international perspective that's often missing from rap journalism. He integrates the gestation of American hip-hop with UK grime and niche scenes from the Canadian prairies, bringing his obsessive knowledge of hip-hop to bear on his subject. He takes us to New York in the 70s, Edmonton in the 90s, the legendary Montreal DIY law scene of the 2000s, and traces the ups and downs of trusting your gut and following your passion obsessively. Hi, Early. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Um, I guess my first question is you, I don't know if this was a, a choice on your publisher's part or a personal choice on yours. I mean, you are a journalist as well, but you decided to bill your, yourself or list yourself with this book as Roly, not as Cadence. Um, mm. Can you talk about the choice to do that? Yeah, for me, um, you know, I feel like Cadence Weapon is like the music project. You know, it's like Nirvana or something. You know, it's like the name of my band. So even though it's just me, I, I I think of it in those terms. So, you know, I'm writing a book, you know, I, I feel like this is something I want to do even more and just continue in the literary world. You know, I want to use my actual name, you know? Roly the writer, Cadence the musician. Yes, exactly. Cadence writes too. Cadence, Cadence writes rhymes <laughs> though. Yeah, that's true. Hey, I'm always writing, you know? <laughs> is it, think of it as like T.I. versus tip. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I'll take it. Um, early on in the book, you write, writing raps represented a world of imagination and escapism that occasionally required a slight reshaping of the boundaries of believability. I really liked that description of what language is, what rap accomplishes with language. And I'm wondering if you could expand on that a little bit. What, what, how does it reshape the boundaries of believability? Yeah, that's the thing is, um, you know, as autobiographical as rap often feels, um, it, it is a construction ultimately. And it's, you know, you and you can make it as much of a construction as you want, you know, and I feel like, you know, whether that's, you know, back in the 90s and stuff, listening to all these, you know, gangster rap records where people are, you know, throwing people out of airplanes and doing all this stuff that's clearly just from the movies. 
um, to, for instance, you know, me rapping from other people's perspectives, you know, writing songs about gentrification and writing from the perspective of like a condo developer or like, you know, just things like that. It's just, it, that's, that's really what hip hop is about to me. I feel like that's one of the, the best things about rap. I feel like a thing that ties to it too, and it's something you talk about is like this point you make in your education of textees, you know, this, this subculture of rappers who rap solely in text format. That's literally fucking with the format and the shape of language to retell a message. Is that right? Is that what, tell us more about textees. Yeah. So that's really how I started as a rapper. It was like purely on the computer, on these message boards, early internet kind of vibes where, you know, it was people from all around the world. I went to rapmusic.com forum and uh, I would go on there and I I would battle people. I would, uh, you know, type up the lyrics and people would judge who had the best verse. And sometimes there were like tournaments, like it was really complicated and, and it was, I got really into it, you know, and you know, and then I was doing it more with my voice where I would like, you know, you can record on your own little computer mic and then send, you know, uh, you send it up against somebody else and it would still be a competition. And then this was also happening on the message, message board as well. So there's a, there's a cipher happening, but there's no, there's like no beat, right? It's like literally just verse to verse. Oh, no, no, no. Like with, with the voice ones, you would just get an instrumental off of like Kazaa or something and, you know, just like crudely put your lyrics over top of it. And uh, that was that when I listened back, I found some of those, too. Oh, wow. Um, and it's like pretty gnarly. Like it's not it's really not good, and especially like this battle rap style. So like think like, you know, it's offensive, you know, and it's, you know, it's just like very uh, juvenile. Well, how um, old were you when you were on these boards? Oh, I would have been a teenager for sure. I was like, you know, like four, fifteen. You know, it was like early internet. It was like dial up. You know, but as, when you weren't uploading it, it was literally just like people reading. Like it, it was very literary, is what it sounds to me. Cause yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it was it, it's it's poetry. It was just like yeah. people making very angry poetry and typing it up and sending it to each other. And uh, that's what I would do after school. You know, that would be mm-hmm. my 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 most uh fun pastime was you know thinking of you know the best disses or whatever or you know eventually it got into the idea of you know writing stories that were just in rhyme form you know it was like a very fun cathartic exercise as a kid would would you ever go into fiction yeah i was just thinking about that you know uh now that i've got my my first you know nonfiction book i d- i definitely feel like there's a lot of stuff that i want to delve into nonfiction like i i'm already thinking about the next book right now you know but um i think you know actually this book originally started as a fiction book really that's, yeah that's the weird thing is like i wasn't always planning to write a memoir and my idea was i was going to write a book from the perspective of uh dj in montreal you know, and draw from my experiences of playing at all the charcuterie restaurants and and after parties and just make that into the narrative. And, you know, that's how I started. And I was going to call it Train Wrecker. And I even like tried to get grants and stuff. Like I was like, really, I, it, it went pretty far. But um, it was just a friend of mine, Stephanie, she suggested, you know, you know, she's like, yeah, I really like this. But why don't you just write about 
your actual life, you know, because it's, you know, quite interesting. I think people would want to hear about it. And that was the first time I really even considered writing a memoir. And that was, would have been like in 2019, you know? So I started thinking about, okay, I tried to adapt what I'd written already. And that ended up becoming um, the chapter about DJing in the book, um, Universal Heartbeat. So much of your career is tied to this very specific early 2000s DIY culture. Um, you were literally touring alongside bands emerging out of a very specific indie rock scene at the time. At the time, I'm so nostalgic for your book. Reading your book was so nostalgic for me. Um, you know, the rise of hipsters and all that. And with all these advances in technology and with more indie labels, more support for musicians, like we're not living in the same world necessarily. And I kind of wonder... Do you think we've sort of lost the heart of all that, that, that the, the, the quality of DIYness to it? Yeah, that's a good question. I feel like um, we're kind of we, back then it felt like we were in between eras of music. You know, like it felt like we were kind of in limbo. Like it was like, OK, yeah, we have the Internet, but no one really knows how to use it yet. And it hasn't been totally subsumed by marketing and corporations and, you know, and it's monetized within an inch of its life the way it is today. And it really felt really exciting. And like, you know, we were making these like bootleg remixes and sending them to each other on message boards and stuff. And there was like all these subcultures that people didn't know about. And, you know, it just felt like a really vibrant time. And I think what has changed, what has changed now is that there is, you know, it's just the, there's so much more like gatekeeping and kind of the, the corporate influence has really made the internet a less appealing place to be, you know, because it's like, I feel like every moment I'm on there, you know, I'm being advertised to, I'm, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm being swayed to go, oh, keep clicking on this thing, you know, stay on, stay on these social media sites, you know, I feel like, uh, I, I talk about this in the book, but I really miss the era where it was like, um, how do I say, um, alt weekly newspapers, you know, and I know Montreal, we still have like called MTL, which is great. Mm -hmm. But, you know, back in the day you had the mirror, you know, Mm -hmm. and in Edmonton, there was view weekly and C magazine. Mm -hmm. And those places, those, those publications were really how you found out about music and found out about local bands and found out about all the local gossip and stuff. Like it was, it was really a self-contained ecosystem for the scenes and once those started going away and all that, those conversations started moving to Facebook and moving to other platforms, um, I think we lost something there. Something that I think about a lot, though, is and, and it is a conversation that definitely takes place in, in publishing. But I, I imagine just generally in any sort of like creative field. And it's actually something I read recently um, in, in a in a novel, a Canadian-based novel, there's this theory that because Canada is so supportive of its art scene, um, because there's less at stake, the quality of art that's coming out is not as uh, potent as, let's say, what a starving, struggling artist in like the States would look like. And you do see this in a lot of, you know, again, in publishing worlds and certainly musically too. And I kind of always think about that. Like, like even you yourself is like, you, you talk about it in the book as people kind of being shocked at a Canadian black rapper, just like the, the thought of that. And I wonder what your thoughts are on terms of the ways in which this country um, cultivates or, or, or takes away from the kind of art that is being created here. Yeah, that's really interesting. I feel like um, when you say support, um, there's a lot of different ways of support. And and yeah. I feel like Canada 
supports artists in one way, you know, with the grant system. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we have a very strong grant system and Americans that I know, they are blown away that that we have these kind of opportunities and it really does help a lot. Um, And I think it can contribute to a lot of mediocrity. It can contribute to very middle of the road art, you know, that is just designed to get grants and really not reaching for anything beyond that. You know, um, but then when we talk about support, I feel like because of the knowledge that we have, oh, yeah, there's all these like grant grubbing artists and writers or whatever. Um, I think your average Canadian listener or reader, I think, is reluctant to support someone within Canada because we have this expectation of the mediocrity before we've even heard or read it. Right. You know, and right. You know, and I kind of talk about this in the book. Um but is I, I feel like this Canadians we are so bad about uh, supporting our own greatest artists or whatever. Like it, it, we're always way behind some other country. We wait until the Americans give the cosign. We wait until yeah. people from England give the cosign. Totally. You know, it's and it's really annoying. You know, especially for me because it was like you know it took you know me getting you know, on Pitchfork and me getting all this attention elsewhere for me to even get an article in the local newspaper in Edmonton, you know? And I feel like that's a huge flaw in our ecosystem. Following up on that sort of um, DIY scene, I'm wondering if you think that very specific online community still exists or what that's manifested into you now. You know, I miss Tumblr so much. I loved Tumblr. I was on a Montreal message board still post like back in the day. I so clearly remember the excitement of like finding a bootleg MP3. Something like at the time, it was literally the unicorns covering 50 cents PIMP at a live show. And someone had just recorded an audio of it. And I found it on a board and added it to my iPod. It was like those kind of like thrilling things that I feel like just doesn't happen anymore. And I don't know if I aged out of these mediums and they persisted and maybe you know of them or if these mediums aged out of the culture in general. No, I think they're they they always go to different places. Like I I'm sure there is something happening on Tumblr. I just don't know what it is. I mean, I think a lot of that is TikTok. You can really get into insane wormholes of subcultures that you have no idea that they existed on there. And and, you know, I think for younger people, it's a very fun place to be. And it's where they chiefly communicate and share ideas is on TikTok. Um, I think another great service like that is uh, Discord. Um, this is something I've been trying to get more into. The thing is, like, I don't really have as much time as I used to have when I was a teenager living in my mom's attic. And I could just be on message boards and chat rooms all day. Um, but you know, I I think there's some artists who are doing some really cool things with discord, like specifically Kenny beats this producer in the States. He has this amazing, uh, community that he's built and it's just based on people who like his music and they like his YouTube show and they go on the discord and he'll go on there and he'll make a beat live or he'll, you know, have artists like who are, who've never put out any records, like send him tracks that they just made and he'll play them on the show for like thousands of people. And then those people will end up getting like record deals and stuff. Like it's, it's, it's really cool. You know, it's, and I feel like it, there's such unlimited potential for that stuff. And I just haven't really tapped into it. And I wish I had more time because I think something really interesting is happening there. 
That's a really interesting point. Maybe that's part of what aging out of a medium is, is like losing the time. It's like Tumblr may, may not be what it used to be, but we also don't have the time to use it like we used to, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I want to talk to you a bit about being an emerging Black artist in, in, a, in this very specifically white world, uh, this indie rock DIY scene, especially the chapters it reflected on in Montreal. I don't think it's a coincidence that the front page blur from Red- Bedroom Rapper is TV on the radio's Tuesday at Adepipe. Um, at one point, you remark on touring and opening for the band Islands and having to announce a disclaimer to the mostly white audience. I make rap music, but just give me a chance. Um, the, literally, you said uh, the book also closes alongside this acknowledgement of the, you know, the emergence of BLM and th- how that happened so many years later on in your career. I guess I, I've always wondered that myself as a woman of color um, and ha- having grown up in Montreal amongst that indie rock scene as well. Why do you think that scene was so specifically white when kids like us were clearly out there? Yeah, you know, I, I think at the time is really, you know, that was what was being platformed everywhere. You know, like in the indie scene, you know, uh, I I find, you know, Canada always, you know, takes cues from America and, you know, they're seeing what was being promoted there. And the bands that were being promoted from Canada in America just happened to be primarily white, you know, and that was, um, you know, we there weren't a lot of bands like TV on the radio at the time. You know, and I, I think it, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, if, if you were somebody like me who was kind of leaning on a few different sides of music, like, you know, I like rap, I like the indie rock, I like electronic, you know, um, I think it's hard for a lot of people to be able to actually see themselves as a part of that community if they're not actively welcomed in. You know, like I felt like for so long that I was just this kind of tourist, you know, no one would really take me seriously. And it was like, I obsessively learned everything about every band and the the entire history of all these genres and just became a total walking encyclopedia of, you know, indie rock and electronic or whatever. And it was never enough, you know, at the time it was, it was just always like, you know, I'm just considered this kind of appendix to the rest of the scene, you know, or like the, the, the way people would, um, people wouldn't even think of me as being a part of the scene, you know, and I'm really happy it's not like that anymore. And now it's, you know, it's, it's a lot more democratic and it's just, if you're interested in the music, I think it, people are a lot more open. Um, and I, I, I do think all, on top of that, um, Canada has become like a lot more diverse, just like demographically too, especially like in, growing up in Edmonton, which was primarily white at the time. But now like, you know, I'm really excited to go for this you know book launch event there and, See the kind of people who are coming out to hear hear my story, you know. Like I, I, it is it is weird because you know we were there, and it's like I would see other like a couple other people like at the shows and stuff. Yeah, I think one of the things is with the internet too is that we have gotten a lot better at getting together and um, galvanizing our own communities and come and 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 realizing what that. Um, kind of marginalization and tokenization is happening. You know, it's like, I think at the time I, I didn't realize, you know, why it felt the way it did and like why, you know, certain things were platformed and certain things weren't platformed. But so that feeling persisted even when you were literally on tour, like, you know, arguably you are as in the scene as you could possibly be. Like when you were the opening act, you still felt like a tourist and an outsider. For oh, for sure. For sure. Like sometimes even more so, you know, it's, it's, it's weird. Like I, every, every show I played for years, 
I just felt like I was a, on a circus act or something, you know, like I was like this curiosity. It's like, look at how fast he can rap. And it's like, what is this music? It's crazy music. Like it was, it, you got to realize like how different time was back then. It was like the iPod had just come out. The idea of like a person. We're so old. I'm, I'm getting up there. I'm, I'm getting, I'm iPod years old. Like I'm, I'm getting kind of haggard, but you know, Back then, that was like, you know, it wasn't uh, common for people to be like, oh, I like all kinds of genres of music. Right. Back then, it was just like, I only like indie rock. And it's like, or it'd be like, I only listen to rap. And the two shall never meet, you know? But then it's like the idea of, look, think about like uh, the way Spotify playlists are now and the way Absolutely. like our entire like playlisting culture is. It's just like everything is. You know, and that's that's something that I've always fought against just throughout my entire career is this idea of genre because it's only designed to separate us. You know, I feel like this whole idea is like, oh, I make indie rock. So and that's for white people. Like it's, mm -hmm. it, it is a form of gatekeeping. Mm -hmm. It's funny, actually. So you write. Um, I really love this passage. Uh, the horror movie violence, the political conscience, consciences, the vulnerability, the weirdness and the spirit of innovation were all pushed further underground while the party raged on in the mainstream. Calling rap conscious rap suggested that mainstream rap is somehow unconscious, which is partly true in that pop rap is often physical music that relies on the body. The other implication is that mainstream rap doesn't stimulate the mind, which isn't always correct. Hip hop culture seems to oscillate. Conscious or gangster becomes the dominant mode every few years. What do you think is currently dominating? Conscious rap or gangster rap? And I'm thinking of the sort of renaissance of Kendrick too, you know, who arguably oscillates between the two. But I'm wondering what your thoughts are there. Because you were saying, you know, you were saying it, it seems like the, the culture can only withstand one version versus the other. Where do you think we are at now? Yeah, you know, I'm thinking, you know, I feel like we're coming out of a very gangsta period into a more conscious period. Because, you know, you see the response to Kendrick's last album and the conversations that is starting and the kind of uh, topics that he's rapping about. And he's like really pushing everything left for the entire culture. And I feel like there is a hunger for that. There's a hunger for like projects that are like more thoughtful and more considerate of just different subjects, you know, and I think um, we're going to see a lot more of that, you know, and, and I think he also showed that, you know, you can, you don't have to like follow like whatever the like micro trend of the month is for hip hop. Like you can do whatever you want and rap about whatever you want, as long as it's like thoughtful and considered, you know? So and I feel like we're coming out of like a time where it was just really um, extreme. Like, I feel like um, a lot of the kind of like thugged out, you know, SoundCloud rap um, from the last few years, it felt like it was like a response to uh, Donald Trump in America, because oh, I feel like it was such a like, it was such a very like hopeless and uh, unreal psychotic time. I think, and for, for being a black artist in America, making hip hop, it's kind of like, listen, you know, I don't want to even like engage with what's happening right now. So I'm just going to like rap about partying and make the most insane, like dystopian noise music that I possibly can. And that's like what I think of when I hear Playboy Cardi. Like, I feel like that is so the sound of, you know, we're, it, it's, the, it's a, the new punk music in a lot of ways to me. I feel like it's funny, though, because 
lyrically you're such a I would say you lean more on the sort of conscious rap side of things but like as a DJ which is also you know something you do successfully and um it's more it's it's not that at all I would say you are straight up like a DJ night is meant this supposed to be a party night is, is that a fair read yeah for sure like I, I feel like there's a, that duality is in my music too though like you know the the subjects and what I what I rap about. I always try to be really thoughtful and like I put so much thought into it. But I think musically, um, I want to always remember that I'm making music, and I think music is designed for being in a community and being in public and you know being played really loud. You know, it's like and it's rap music. You know, so um, I, I try and combine elements of both. Similarly, I guess I, I've always wondered, what did being named Edmonton's Poet Laureate mean to you within the context of your Blackness as well and living mm. in that very white um, geography? Yeah, it was interesting because I, I think it really put um, a microscope on me um, that, you know, I didn't, I wasn't really prepared for it. You know, it was a thing where people suddenly, you know, I would be on the national on CBC and like, Peter Mansbridge is kind of chuckling when he's talking about, you know, this guy's a rapper and he's from Edmonton. He's black. And wow, he's a poet too. Rap can be poetry as well. Go figure. You know, like it, it was, everyone treated me like an anomaly, you know? And it was, it was just, you know, I felt very othered all the time, you know, and I just kind of got used to that. And what it really forced me to do was, okay, you know, like, it's really funny. Like we were just talking about how my lyrics are usually pretty conscious or whatever. And because of the way rap was perceived at that time, you know, they, there was still like this suggestion that is like not as meaningful, you know, because it's rap music, you know, it's like, still people were still saying rap is crap back back then. You know, that was like the, the catchphrase for a while, you know, but I think that all just pushed me to go harder with my lyrics and, you know, really just, push uh, the lyricism as far as I could and be as creative as I could to the point where, you know, I wanted to be like, you could put my lyrics in a book and uh, here we are. I literally wrote a book. In this book, you, you reflect on your time as a music critic as well. Um, this that's actually was my original pursuit before I started my career in publishing. So granted, I was very young when writing my early criticism. I also sort of always felt like an imposter syndrome about it. Like, who was I to publicly say this record was trash or not? And you, on the other hand, seem to experience the flip side. You kind of note in the book that you were at times overly confident and didn't toe the line of objectivity and journalism as well as you could have, which is very mature and grand of you. And I admire that. But what about when the record is just trash, though? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's the issue with criticism. What if it actually is trash? People need to know. Right. But I, I, here's point. what I, yeah, that's the whole point. Right. But, you know, I think my philosophy now is, you know, I really only want to talk about music I love and, and, and boost things. And I feel like that's a little more compelling. You know, I, I really love reading a good review still today. You know, like I, I'm, I really enjoy reading uh, Craig Jenkins reviews in, um, in the, in Vulture. I think he's absolutely incredible. Um, uh, I feel like, Criticism, you know, the point of it is to try and create consensus, you know, and where where there was none before, you know, or like you're trying to create a canon, you know, to be ju- for albums to be judged against each other. Um, I do think that might not be totally possible today, um, just with the internet and things are getting way more stratified and 
and everyone has t- such different opinions that, you know, your top 50 rap albums are going to be completely different from mine, you know, and I don't know if it'll ever get to the point where we can have critical consensus ever again, you know, You're, like, I, I don't know if you saw with like the Rolling Stone list that they just did of the best rap albums and mm-hmm. people, you know, it had like Cardi B at like 18 or something mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, people were really up in arms about that you know and it just goes to show is like all these there's all these like kind of moldy old 90s rap records that i think are just they're solidly in the canon but then like a newer album people are just like kind of confused about it but it's like don't you remember when those albums first came out and people were declaring them classics right away Right. So it's like, what's the difference between now and then where the approach feels not as authentic because it's music that, you know, you like, you know, it doesn't seem as serious or something like I just find it really fascinating. And also the thing about music criticism is the, is the critics change, mm-hmm. which I think yeah. is important. You know, it's like and nowadays critics are a lot more diverse. It's, a, it's, it's like a, it's a whole different playing field now because back in when I was writing uh, for Pitchfork in 2003, you know, I was the only black person, you know, and Mm. I was really not only that, but like they barely even covered rap before I started writing there, you know, and I was like, you know, you need to have this album. We need to review this album, you know, and it it was just, it was just weird. When you started, it was purely white indie rock. That was the point of Pitchfork. It was, it was a message board turned into like this now mainstream magazine, so to speak. Um, It's interesting too, because you're also an artist and a critic. So here you have this thing where even with this book, you've created, you've created this, you know, you've made this creative output and now it's out there in the world and it's getting coverage and, and things like that, but it would presumably get criticism just like your music does. And I sort of wonder like being both, like how do you navigate that? Like, you know, you have the brain of the of a creative person, but you also have the brain of a critic. Yeah, the the ironic thing about that is um, I'm a very sensitive person. Oh. <laughs> so when I started putting out records and getting criticized about them, I couldn't take it. I was like, oh my God, I worked so hard on that. And then I started having more empathy for these artists that I had reviewed before. I was just like, oh damn, I really didn't consider, you know, people, you know how long it takes to make an album is like a year's one or two or maybe even three or four you know and then it's like to have have something that has been your life for so long he goes out into the world and everyone's like trash at like 1205 a.m you know when it first goes on streaming like it it probably feels bad you know um (laughs) yeah so yeah that's interesting like would you do music criticism again yeah, I mean, I feel like this book is is a good example of it. You know, mm-hmm. I feel like there's just different ways of approaching it. You know, I re- I recently did a Pitchfork review um, a couple a year ago or something uh, for Freestyle Fellowship, um, Inner City Grios, and um, that was a really fun experience. Um, I feel like, yeah, it, it, I would only really do it if it, it's more to platform records that I really care about. Like I'm not really interested in criticizing other artists anymore. Like it's, you know, my, my thing is like, I like to criticize governments and politicians and uh, leaders and stuff. You know, I don't, I, I, I don't really criticize artists anymore. I know for, for listeners who maybe weren't at the St. Henry books event, I feel like there was a huge like vibe and a lot of commentary of just like, Broly, when are you running for office? <laughs> 
it seems like that's the next step. Yeah, that's what everyone wants me to do. Yeah, I've been. That's the number one question I get. And is that you know, what you want to do? Um, I think maybe at some point. I mean, my my thing is like I just want to do where I can affect the most change, you know. And I feel like, you know, in my artistry, in my writing, right now, you know, I have a good platform, and I don't want to get to the point where I can't um, say how I truly feel. You know, when when you when you're in, in a political party, you got to toe the party line, and I've never been really good at that. <laughs> That's the problem. Uh, given the financial losses and just general disregard that you experienced with your early label that you outlined, um, you know, pretty thoroughly in this book, I kind of want to ask you a very cliche question. And I, I really wonder um, if you had the opportunity to do it all over again, would you change anything? That's a good question. Um, I think no, because I feel like this was all supposed to happen to me. You know, I feel like it, it was meant to be. It made me the artist I am today. And I feel like um, maybe it was my calling to write this book and hopefully, you know, show artists what not to do. You know, like maybe maybe that's what I'm supposed to be doing. You know, it feels like quite poetic in a way because I went from never making any money to winning the Polaris Prize. And it just feels like a cinematic structure or something. So, yeah. So no regrets. No, no. I mean, yeah, it was, there, I had some very hard times, hard years, you know, where there was no idea where, you know, the money was going to come from to keep living, you know. It, 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 it's definitely a really tough thing to be a freelance artist of any stripe. I think, you know, I think the only thing that kept me really going was the passion that I have for music. You know, I really love music and I think I always came from a place of just, you know, music first. So I think that kind of philosophy really brought me to a place where, you know, I started getting attention for the music again and I, I rebuilt my career. And it's like, I feel like just that toughness that it took to get through that, it's really served me well as an artist and it, and it showed me what's really important. You know, it, you know, I feel like, Maybe, you know, I've, I've thought about different things that could happen. Like there were other labels that wanted to sign me, you know, like, you know, Warner Records like emailed me and stuff like, mm -hmm. you know, uh, there's just different decisions I could have made. And I wonder if, you know, maybe I was on a bigger label, you know, I could have had one album and just totally flamed out and, you know, you never heard from me again. You never know with these things, you know. Yeah, I know. It's like looking at the catalog of like, I could have married that ex and where would I be? Now? <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, I do that too. <laughs> <laughs> I know you actually, you're pretty frank about it in the book too. But you also talk about the ways, you know, there's a whole segment of the book that's essentially this love letter to Montreal um, and the ways in which Montreal really fostered you know, these, you in a period where you're really disadvantaged um, and be, you comment on, you know, everything that we know about Montreal, it's the rent is affordable, or at least it used to be. It still is comparatively other, most places, but uh, it is beginning to become a problem. Um, but that specific time period, rent was cheap. Um, the cost of living was cheap. You could really just like share a loft with your homies and like work on your art. Um, it, it, like I said, it, it's really meaningful to have that time that feels so personal to me 
captured in this capsule uh, and put out there. So I thank you for that. Um, but it does make me wonder, is Montreal a city for, for, for the youth? You know what I mean? I think it always will be. I think that's the spirit of the city. You know, I feel like even the old people who are there, they they act like kids. But I feel like there's just this, like when when you're not actually from there, there's this kind of timer or something in your mind where it's just, you know, there. I think there's a lot of, especially with like language and stuff. You know, there's there's certain barriers that, right. you know, it doesn't matter if you're um, unless you're actually francophone or you know. You, you can't get past certain things, you know? So I think that is a, a major barrier for a lot of people when they, when they come to Montreal. And also usually it's just people come for school and, you know, they have like the best time of their life and it, you know, they come away completely changed and then they go back to uh, the rest of Canada and, um, you know, go to the job that they were going to get anyway and do their thing. So you're never coming back. Oh, I mean, here's the thing. Here's the thing with Montreal and me. Um, <laughs> What's the thing? So the thing is I found, you know, I wasn't, I didn't leave Montreal for any real specific reason. Like, you know, at my time, at the time, you know, the person I was dating got a job in Toronto and I just moved with her. But um, mm-hmm. I feel like Toronto has been really good for just being closer to the music industry and I've, I felt like in Montreal, it was, it's, it's a very creative place. It's like a place that I, I hold near and dear to my heart. But I feel like, you know, sometimes that youthful spirit, you know, it 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 gets it pushes me um, too far or something. You know, like it's like I just, you know, I found like I couldn't get a lot of stuff done when I lived in Montreal. And that's just my personal experience. You know, I didn't release very many albums. I was not very productive, uh, in my opinion. I don't think you're the only one. Um, of artists, you write, we are the chosen vessels for these concepts and we have a responsibility to make the most of the gifts we are given. What kind of person do you think gets chosen for this responsibility? Like why them? Why you? Why us? Yeah. You know, I, it is a gift, you know, it's like being an artist, you know, it's a gift. It's a calling. It's something, you know, because who else would do this, you know? Like who would choose to have a life like mine, you know, uh, the, the ups and downs and everything. No one would choose it unless it's all you could do, you know? And I, I do believe, you know, when I'm, when I'm talking about that, you know, I think I'm trying to remove the idea of like, we have control over it. You know, it's like, I don't, I don't really like to take responsibility for what I create because I'm just a vessel that is going through. I just happen to be, ready for it. I have enough experience. My antenna is up, you know, and I feel like that's just kind of what separates me from like, you know, normal person or something. Cause like, I'm just ready to absorb the idea, but the idea is just going to be there anyway. And it's, you know, you, you can decide if you want to be the person that reaches out for it. You know, I do. Um, we recently had the pleasure of hosting you at, again, at your Montreal launch at Library St. Henry Books and then being booksellers for a connected par- after party after where you DJed. You're continuing to do this on tour for the book. Um, on page 213 in the book, you write, just before the bar would close at three in the morning, I'd often play the following songs in rapid succession. Usher featuring Young Jeezy, Love in This Club, Justin Timberlake, Cry Me a River, Aaliyah, Are You That Somebody, Destiny's Child, Say My Name, genuine pony and my misremembering is that not how you literally closed out the after party in montreal yeah yeah i did yeah no it was like uh it was on purpose like it was like 
<laughs> like it was a symbolic gesture, you know. Um, I didn't, I, I didn't play Crimea River. That was the only one, but I, I did go there. I, I did go there. You know, it's because it just like felt like <laughs> it just felt like the moment to do that. Thank you so much for for doing this, Roly. Um, Libraries and Henry Books customers, listeners, weird era subscribers, you can find signed copies of Bedroom Wrapper at Libraries and Henry Books. Um, and I thank you again for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. And you know this this book is is in a lot of ways a Montreal book. Like I couldn't have written it without having lived there and I'm really excited to hear how it resonates with the people out there. Thanks, Charlie.